Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben. I'm Sarah. Thank you so much for listening to us today. There is some construction going on on our street. It might just be wrapping up. We don't really know. So if there are some weird background noises in this episode, just bear with us, listeners. Ben, do you know what day it is? No. What day is it, Sarah? It's October. The best month of the year. (laughs) That's Ben. That's not your local ghost. Just saying hello. The podcast is not haunted. No. To the best of our knowledge. (laughs) Uh, What are we watching today, Ben? Well, Sarah, we are watching Murders in the Rue Morgue from 1932, and I am very excited to talk about this movie today. Okay. It's not as widely seen as some of the other universal horror classics for a variety of reasons, Um, but it's a really interesting one to talk about because it's kind of like this key in the history of those films that kind of explains why things happened the way they did after this point. It's it's sort of a, an interesting linchpin in history. Really? Mm-hmm. That sounds really cool. Yeah. Well, before we get there, should I talk about Edgar Allan Poe, or old friend? <laughs> yes, it's, I think, always appropriate to talk about Edgar Allan Poe on this podcast, so <laughs> dive right in, Sarah. So the last time I talked about Edgar Allan Poe was in episode 22, where uh, we were covering the fall of the House of Usher. I think there was even, like, a previous episode where I went into even more detail about his life. So I'm going to kind of just give, like, a brief overview of what, uh, of some of the highlights of his life, and then kind of situate where he's at when he was writing Murders on the Rue Morgue. Okay. Which, uh, actually, for listeners who didn't know, Rue Morgue just means Death Street. Oh. Morgue Street. Okay. Huh. Rue is street in French. I feel like I knew that, but I never put, like, two and two together. I always assumed maybe that, like, Rue was the name of the particular morgue. But the murders happen not in a morgue. Yeah, that, yeah, the murders (laughs) are on Morgue Street. Okay, that's, like, on Death Street. Yeah, a fictional street in Paris. Right, because, like, morgue just means dead anyways, right? Yeah. Okay, that puts a lot of things together for me. It reminds me of when I was growing up and I scoffed at R.L. Stein's Fear Street right. novels. Right. Being and like, like wow. Fear Street? That's such a dumb name. Right. And here we are with, yeah. <laughs> Edgar Allan Poe in eight, the 1800s. He got to get away with a lot because, you know, he was doing a lot of this stuff for the first time. Fair. Edgar Allan Poe lived from 1809 to 1849. So pretty busy, but ultimately short life. He married in 1836 to his 13-year-old cousin, Mm -hmm. Virginia Clem. Anytime I talk about Poe, I will mention that he did this and how gross it is. Goodness gracious, great balls of fire. It's a Jerry Lee Lewis reference. He was a famous rock and roll pianist in the 1950s who did that song, who also married his 13-year-old cousin. Oh, why is this such a common thing? I don't (laughs) 
Stop <laughs> marrying your cousins that are half your age. Or less. Or less. Why is this a thing? But I digress. Murders in the Rue Morgue was published in 1841, which is only eight years before Poe would pass away. And by this point, he had been writing full-time for just over ten years, uh, as well as working as an editor for various periodicals across the northeastern states. Okay, so was this before or after he wrote Fall of the House of Usher then, Sarah? This is two years after that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and actually, it's like a nice transition from Fall of the House of Usher to Murders in the Rue Morgue, because I mentioned in that episode how um, Poe is 30 years old at this point, and he's working as an assistant editor at Burton's Gentleman's Magazine. Mm-hmm. And that is also where he published Fall of the House of Usher at mm-hmm. the same time. So that's 1839. Mm-hmm. That following year, Burton's Gentleman's Magazine was sold to... George Rex Graham, okay, uh, which was then merged with another publication, Atkinson's Casket, uh, to form Graham's Magazine. Two months after Graham's Magazine started, Poe was hired as an editor. Uh, Poe started at Graham's uh, and postponed his own plans to start his journal, The Pen. Graham had said that he would subsidize that magazine if Poe worked for him for one year. That didn't happen. Yeah. That sounds about right. Graham hired Poe because his existing clout as an author would give a reputation to the magazine without the magazine actually having to really work for it. Right. Graham's wanted it to be a magazine for both men and women, but because of its uh, focus on engravings, artwork, and fashion, it was kind of seen as like a, a lesser magazine. Yeah, a women's magazine. <laughs> yeah, and so Poe was brought on to kind of give it some clout. Grams paid their writers and, like, fictional story writers $5 a page, which is quite a lot in those mm, days. Yeah, that's a good rate. And in 1841 is when Poe would publish Murders in the Room Morgue in this magazine um, and many other Poe stories. Poe would also establish his Literati of New York series, which is a gossip column on authors in New York. Oh, that's funny. Grams was also the first magazine in the U.S. to copyright each individual issue. Okay. Uh, which is interesting to consider, given that Poe was always struggling with issues of copyright of his work being resold or copied overseas. Oh. Yeah. In Grams magazine, Poe would continue his work as a pretty harsh critic, but people seem to really respect his words. He left the magazine in 1842 due to his wife Virginia getting tuberculosis and never really fully recovering, Mm. Um, as well as his own worsening alcoholic issues. Right. Poe's successor would be Rufus Wilmot Griswold. Yeah. Who is his arch nemesis. Yeah. (laughs) Griswold hated Poe and began rejecting all of Poe's submissions Uh, including The Raven in 1845. Mm. Philadelphia editor George Lepard said, It was Mr. Poe that made Graham's magazine what it was a year ago. It was his intellect that gave this now weak and flimsy periodical a tone of refinement and mental vigor. (laughs) (laughs) So Griswold was hired in April 1842. By the fall, Graham asked Poe to come back. Oh. Who declined. Huh. Though the Raven was Poe's kind of claim to fame outside the literary circles, yeah, 
he was very established beforehand, and Murders in the Room Morgue really proved that he was really worth his salt to the literary community. The Pennsylvania Inquirer reviewed it and said, It proves Mr. Poe to be a man of genius with an inventive power and skill of which we know no parallels. Hmm. Murders in the Room Morgue, uh, like I said, it was published in 1841, and it was the very first detective story. Period? Period. Wow. Um, like, detective story as we know it. Sure, sure, sure. There is this novella by E.T.A. Hoffman titled Mademoiselle Descideri uh, from 1819, which is kind of, like, seen as, like, a possible contender to take that title away from Murders in the Room Morgue, but it's often not considered an example of crime or detective fiction, as the novel is not focused on the solving of a crime, but rather whether the main character will be exonerated and reunited with his love interest. And it's not solved by the lead character's investigations, reasoning, finding of evidence, nothing like that, but it's by her own pure character. So what you're saying is that, like, there isn't, like, the whole aspect of a detective story in terms of, like, an intellectual challenge. It's just, will this character be found to be morally righteous? Yes, she will. Yeah. Okay. And by that righteousness, the supposed criminal is exonerated. Right, sure. Whereas Murders in the Room Morgue has a detective who is just looking for this intellectual challenge. It's almost like a supernatural ability, the way he's able to decipher um, things about people through observation. So, so everything about Sherlock Holmes <laughs> comes from this book, yeah, this was, short story. I was going to say, so he's every fictional detective who ever came later. Exactly. Right. So who is this guy? See, Auguste Dupin. Like C as in C page 142? or C as in that's like his first name is like Charles or something, but it's just given a C. <laughs> gotcha. <you know>? Okay. <laughs> And in addition to like this brilliant detective trope that is established in the short story, uh, there are other tropes like the personal friend acting as narrator, mm -hmm. and the final revelation being revealed and then explained. Right. Which is always a, an easy writer's trick to make your guy look super smart. Yeah. In addition to being the first detective story, it's the first locked room mystery as well. Okay. Locked room mystery being there's no way that someone could have entered to commit the murder and also have left to escape being caught. Right. We talked a little bit about locked room mysteries in our Phantom of the Opera episode uh, because Gaston LaRue wrote The Mystery of the Yellow Room, which was the first locked room novel, mm. uh, where, of course, uh, Murders in the Room Morgue is a short story, right? Yes, yeah. Mm -hmm. So... Plot summary time for mm -hmm. Murders in the Room Morgue. And this is paraphrasing because, of course, it's like a, a detective story, right? So there's a lot of like, and then they go over here and like talk to this yeah. person, and then yeah. they go over here. and Yeah, yeah it's very involved, yeah. Yeah, so I'm just kind of like skimming. Mm -hmm. So uh, C. Auguste Dupin uh, is having breakfast with his friend, and he deduces his friend is thinking about the actor Chantilly. And he does this through this method called ratiocination. Okay. The information obtained should come from the quality of the observation, not in the validity of the inference. That's the quote that's from the book, as he explains it. Okay. The better the observations, the more accurate the information derived from it. Yes. Okay. 
that's a way better of putting it than what I just said. Right. So again, it's it's he's every fictional detective who comes afterwards, pretty much. Unless exactly. you're like one of those fictional detectives who solves crimes because you know like a ghost or something. Hey, don't talk about Medium that way. <laughs> I love that show. <laughs> Show's garbage. During their breakfast, they're reading the newspaper, and they read about the double murder of a mother and daughter in the room morgue. Um, the mom was found behind the house with many broken bones, a deep cut on her throat, so much to the point that when the police move her body, her head falls off. Ooh. And the daughter was strangled and stuffed in the chimney. Ooh. So very, very gruesome. They lived on the fourth floor room. Uh, it was locked from the inside. And at the scene, the police found a bloody razor, tufts of gray hair, and two bags of gold coins. Witnesses also heard two voices at the time of the murder. One, which everyone identified as male and French, and the second voice in a language that was unknown. Mm. They also read how this bank clerk named Le Bon has been arrested with very little evidence, and it's at this point that Dupin offers help to the police prefect to solve the murders, because he is not convinced that... Le Bon is guilty. Right. And kind of the order of the deductions, because so many people don't recognize the second language that was spoken, DuPont concludes that it must not have been a human voice, a human language. Mm-hmm. The reason for arresting Le Bon is uh, on the motive of robbery, which can't be true, yeah. because there was gold left there. He also concludes that it would have required superhuman strength to put the daughter in the chimney. Mm-hmm. As which is, like, a little obvious that I kind of, like, side-eye the police here. The culprit obviously entered in through the window. Right. Well, I think, like, one of the things you see a lot when you read, like, old 1800s detective stories is that, like, early police were shitty. <laughs> like, because the, they didn't actually, like, really have professional detectives on staff, right? It was yeah. just kind of like, if the... Crime wasn't super obvious, you just got away with it. Yeah. For reasons that aren't exactly clear, because it's explained later, Dupont concludes that an orangutan is the culprit. Right. So he places an ad in the newspaper to see if one's recently been lost. <laughs> Adorable. Uh, a sailor comes forward. The ad is placed in a way that sounds like an orangutan has been found. So the sailor's just right. like, yeah, just give me the dude back. Look, I'm, I'm heading out. Yeah. Uh, and Dupin's like, nah, dude, what's up? Uh, so the orangutan was brought from Borneo, uh, but the sailor couldn't really tame it. It's also established that the sailor would whip and abuse the orangutan. Mm-hmm. One day, uh, the sailor found it trying to shave himself in a way of, like, mimicking humans. Okay. And when caught... The orangutan fled into the streets. He went to the house with the razor. Mom obviously freaked out because it's an orangutan. Uh, and so the orangutan became enraged and uh, was waving the razor around and sliced her neck accidentally. Um, and because the daughter's also screaming, he strangled her. Right. The sailor followed up the window and the orangutan, fearing for their punishment, tossed the mom out the window uh, into the yard behind the house and stuffed the daughter up the chimney. So you'd think, oh, right, they, they've solved it, sort of. Sailor's going to jail, orangutan's being put down, right? Right. Uh, Laban is released, so, you know, happy ending for him. 
The sailor just sells the orangutan, and uh, the police prefect is embarrassed. <laughs> okay. Kind of a bit of an anti-climax, but I guess... The climax comes from it being like, orangutan? Yeah, it's the solving of the mystery that's the climax of the story, not the tracking Outcome. down... Yeah, not the tracking down of the criminal or whatever. Yeah. What's kind of interesting is, like, at the time when this short story was published, U.S. cities were starting to really focus on crime as a social ill, and newspapers were covering murders and trials. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, newspapers were, like, fairly new on the grand scheme of things in, in the 1840s, and police departments were fairly new on the grand scheme of things in the 1840s. So, mm -hmm. you know, this all kind of makes sense. Yeah. What is also interesting, and what listeners might have picked up in this description of the story, is that it's not horror. Yeah, it's a detective story. Yep. I mean... Like, the murders are particularly gruesome, and it takes place on Death Street. And you got that uh, loose orangutan, which means it's, I guess, like a step up from the plot of The Monster Walks, because the, <laughs> the animal gets to do something. But it's not a horror story. Yeah. The focus of the story isn't around, like, people being scared. It's about, how is this guy putting two and two together? This short story has been adapted uh, a few times. Before the adaptation that we're watching today, it's been adapted twice. So first in 1908 as a Sherlock Holmes film. Oh, okay. Uh, called Sherlock Holmes in the Great Murder Mystery. So it's exactly Murder in the Rue Morgue, but starring Sherlock Holmes. Right. Um, and this film is lost. Uh, and then in 1914, there was a short silent film adaptation title of Murder in the Rue Morgue. And it's described as a crime and horror film, mm -hmm. um, but I couldn't find any other information about it. And then the next adaptation is the 1932 one. Right. So yeah, as you, as you kind of pointed out, Murders in the Rue Morgue is not really a horror story. Mm -hmm. It is, however, written by Edgar Allan Poe, who did write a lot of early spooky ghost story, horror story stuff in the American canon. So mm -hmm. there's a tangential relation there. The film is kind of a different story altogether. We talked in earlier episodes, particularly our episode on the Avenging Conscience, about the trend of these films using Poe stories as jumping off points and where that came from, which was this desire for kind of literary legitimacy. Yeah. So the first, you know, big horror film from Universal was Dracula, based on the Bram Stoker novel, and then they went from that to Frankenstein, based on the Mary Shelley novel, and those two stories were already sort of linked together, one following the other, because of the plays that had already been produced. Right. Murders in the Rue Morgue was Universal's third horror movie after those two. So after those two, the question became like, where do you go next? What do you do next? So mining the Poe canon, you know, makes sense for that. Mm -hmm. uh, but you're going to make it into a horror movie because that's the new trend. And Hollywood, then as now, was never particularly concerned with maintaining fidelity to source material. <laughs> so as we mentioned in our Frankenstein episode, and you can go back and listen to that episode for some additional details... Originally, Frankenstein was meant to be written and directed by a man named Robert Florey and starring Bela Lugosi. But due to some very disastrous screen tests directed by Florey of Lugosi in the original Jack Pierce makeup design for the monster, the two men were let go from the project. And instead, James Whale was brought in and Boris Karloff starred in the movie and it was a huge hit. 
So Murders in the Rue Morgue was given to Flory and Lugosi as a consolation prize mm. from Carl Emley Jr. after they were taken off of Frankenstein. Um, Flory was very enthusiastic about doing horror movies for Universal. Lugosi was still a big star because of the success of Dracula with a long-term contract with Universal Studios. So just because they were taken off that movie didn't mean they were persona non grata. Uh, so they were given this film as a sorry, <laughs> as an apology, as a here, do this. Robert Flory was born in Paris in 1900, and he began his career as a film journalist. Oh, cool. He moved to Hollywood in 1921, where he became the assistant director for Joseph von Sternberg. He made his first feature film in 1926, and achieved probably his greatest financial success in 1929 with The Coconuts, which was the first Marx Brothers feature film. Hmm. Having been denied Frankenstein, Flory decided to make the most of his new assignment to create in Murders in the Rue Morgue an ode to German expressionist horror. That's really interesting because uh, you mentioned in the Frankenstein episode how the original design of the monster was based on Paul Wagner's Golem. Yeah, so clearly Flory was a fan of those films. Yeah. Uh, and this was kind of designed to be an homage to them. Specifically, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Oh. To achieve this, he worked closely with the film's cinematographer, Carl Freund, who had shot Dracula and was a veteran of the German Expressionist style, having shot The Golem and The Last Laugh and Metropolis. We've talked about Carl Freund before. I just imagine the director being a little bit of a fanboy when first meeting this guy. Yeah, That's for sure. Cool. The elaborate 19th century Paris sets for the film were also designed with a mind to evoke the look of Hamburg in Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. However... As the film entered pre-production in September of 1931, Junior got cold feet. <laughs> Frankenstein wouldn't be out until November, and Lemley began to grow convinced that the success of Dracula earlier that year had been a fluke. Gotta just trust your instincts, dude. So, uh... You're in this deep, just go for it. <laughs> so, in this regard, he ordered the budget for Murders in the Rue Morgue cut from $280,000 to $186,000. Wow. And that the film be updated to contemporary times rather than have a period setting. Flory, at this point, after all that had happened, was getting pretty sick of being interfered with mm -hmm. by Carl Lemley Jr., so he quit until Lemley agreed to restore the 19th century period setting. But that being said, Flory would lose his choice of leading lady. He had wanted Betty Davis for the lead female role, but Lemley felt that Davis wasn't sexy enough and had no screen presence and replaced her with actress Sidney Fox. Okay. At this point in her career, Betty Davis was kind of a nobody. She hadn't yet evolved into the big Hollywood movie star she would eventually be. Sidney Fox, on the other hand, was a department store model who got spotted by talent scouts and got into Hollywood that way. As filming began, Flory grew ever more dissatisfied with the script he had been provided by Tom Reed and Dale Van Every. Van Every was a prestigious screenwriter, award-winning novelist, 
and also a Universal Studios executive. That script had already undergone a dialogue polish by John Huston. Yes, that John Huston of Maltese Falcon, Treasure of Sierra Madre, African Queen, Chinatown fame, who at this time was just 26 years old and working as a dialogue writer in the Universal Script Department. <laughs> because his father, Walter Houston, was a movie star actor at the studio at the time. Because of these problems with the screenplay, Flory took it upon himself to rewrite the script. But because of the troubled production, this took some time, so revisions continued throughout the filming of the film. Oh no! So, probably for a variety of these reasons, Upon viewing the first cut of the finished film, Carl Lemley Jr. was dissatisfied. Yeah. He thought the film was too violent, he thought its themes were too transgressive, and he also thought that the pacing was too slow in the beginning. To this end, he ordered 20 minutes cut from the running time, and also that the order of the scenes in the first third of the movie be changed to introduce the lead characters sooner. Okay. Unhappy about this, but wishing to finish the film at this point, Flory bowed to these demands. But then Frankenstein came out and made $12 million. <laughs> Emboldened, Lemley started throwing money at Robert Flory for oh, reshoots. Just stick to a gosh dang plan, buddy. <laughs> this was like Junior's first big hits of success, right? Like, he was gifted this position yeah, he for was, his birthday, yeah, if I recall. Yes, that was in 1928 uh, that he was given the studio as a birthday present, uh, with his dad still owning the studio as president and Lemley in charge of production. They had won Best Picture Oscar in 1930, uh, and then they'd had, you know, Dracula as a big success in 31, Frankenstein as a bigger success later in 31. Yeah, dude, just chill out. This advice is coming way too late for him, though. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> so, with these reshoots that took place through December of 1931, they included using a real ape to supplement the footage already shot for the film, which was a man, professional ape suit actor Charles Gamora, in an ape suit. Unfortunately, the real animal they used was a female chimpanzee, and very noticeably different in appearance to the male gorilla suit that Gamora used. So, even critics of the time pointed out these differences as a major flaw in the film. Yeah. Speaking of which, Murders in the Rue Morgue debuted on February 21st, 1932, a day after Freaks, by the way. Critics savaged it. For various reasons, including how far the film departed from the Poe source material, the plot making no real sense, and the cast overacting too much. Oh no. Which was, might have been a specific direction given since Flory was so into German Expressionist film and this was supposed to be an homage to that. Yeah, and the plot making no sense is a problem that's caused by the 20 minutes that were cut out and the first third of the film having its scenes all reordered. Yeah. Um, and the fact that it's very different from the Poe story... Well, that was always going to happen because they needed to turn it into a horror story, specifically one that had a role in it for Bela Lugosi, which, if you go from the Poe short story, who was he going to play? Dupin? I don't think so. I mean, he could. 
it would have to not be a horror movie, but I think Lugosi would have had it in him to play that character. Sure, but I think also, you know, because of Dracula, what Universal wanted from Lugosi was villains. Yeah. He could play the ape. <laughs> well, that had already proven to be a problem with Frankenstein. <laughs> Audiences ended up agreeing with the critics, and Murders oh. in the Rue Morgue was a major box office disappointment for Universal Studios. The result of this was twofold. Robert Flory's career as an expressionist horror director for Universal was over. Instead, he became a director of B-movies for lesser studios, gradually building a pretty respected career for finishing low-budget films quickly and competently, growing to be called the best of the B-directors by his contemporaries. Bela Lugosi, however, fared worse. Having been made a star from his appearance in Universal's Dracula, Lugosi had been signed to a long-term contract with the studio that would have guaranteed him starring roles for years. But after his dismissal-slash-resignation from Frankenstein, and then the failure of Murders in the Rue Morgue, Lugosi found his contract with Universal terminated. He would only make two more films with Universal, so long as the Lemleys controlled the studio. 1934's The Black Cat and 1935's The Raven, both times as second fiddle to Boris Karloff. Lugosi would spend the majority of the 1930s in B-movies, indies, and serials, cheaply made films trading off of his name value. The one person to come out of Murders in the Rue Morgue unscathed was Carl Freund. These days, when critics talk about this movie, they tend to regard it fairly well for its dark, expressionistic, visual style. And in 1932, Carl Emley agreed, uh, promoting Freund to director for their next planned horror film, The Mummy. Mm. Like many pre-code horror films, uh, this one found some difficulty upon re-release post-code, with Hayes' office enforcer Joseph Breen condemning the film personally and cutting so much out of it that it was deemed incomprehensible. In recent years, uh, the film has been re-regarded, both for its visual style and its transgressive content, although it has been restored to its pre-code form. Uh, that's still the 60-minute runtime release version, not the original 80-minute version, which, of course, is just kind of gone. I'll talk about the editing and what was cut and how the story was reshuffled around after we've watched the film, mm -hmm. and we have the context of our kind of traditional plot summary to base it off of. For sure. Can you kind of explain what you mean by transgressive themes? Yeah, I think we're going to talk, we're going to get into that after we watch the film. For sure. Because uh, Ben and I have watched this, I, I know for me I've watched it once. Yeah, I've watched this once before with you as well. And I don't really remember it. So uh, I'm looking forward to watching it again. Yeah, I mean, when I say transgressive, I don't necessarily mean progressive. Yeah. At the same time. Like, it's more that it's got some weird taboo shit implied in it. Okay. So, how are we watching the film? Well, uh, Murders in the Rue Morgue was released on DVD by Universal as part of their Universal Vault series, uh, and is also available to stream on iTunes and YouTube. So, uh, I've put a link to the YouTube uh, version up on the Screen Scene YouTube playlist. Cool. 
If listeners would like to watch along, you can find that list at screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. Till then, we will watch the film. We invite you to watch along with us, and we'll hear a brief musical interlude, and we will be right back. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Murders in the Room Morgue from 1932, directed by Robert Fleury, starring Bella Lugosi. Mm-hmm. Ben, what, did you, what do you think about watching this movie now after doing the podcast versus the first time we watched this a few years ago? I think the podcast provides like a really interesting context to a lot of these films in terms of like looking at them in the context of, like, the overall development of the horror genre, because you can feel when a movie's pushing forward in some areas, but then maybe also, like, regressing back mm-hmm. in others. Yeah. Um, and I think, to wit, Murders in the Room Org is perhaps best described with a single word. Uneven. <laughs> yeah, Definitely. How about you give us a bit of a plot summary and then we can talk about what was changed and all the cuts and everything. Cool, yeah, for sure. Murders in the Rue Morgue is set in Paris in 1845, which I thought was a bit of a weird, arbitrary year change from the 1841 story. Whatever. (laughs) Uh, And our lead characters, Pierre Dupont, again, an arbitrary change, and his friend... Paul. Paul... Doesn't strike me as a very French name. They have taken their girlfriends out to a carnival. And uh, after going through some unnecessarily culturally insensitive acts at this carnival... Ooh, that's being nice. <laughs> Racist and sexist yeah. is, one, is another way of putting it. Yeah, yeah. The movie right away doesn't earn your sympathies because it just immediately starts with a whole bunch of racist and sexist crap at this carnival. Anyways, after a bunch of that, they find their way to the act of a Dr. Miracle, who is Bela Lugosi, and he is a scientist who is essentially studying the theory of evolution. And he's got this ape with him that he shows, who is like an ape man because he's super smart and has his own language that Miracle has um, deciphered. Uh, even though when Eric speaks, it sort of just sounds like someone going like, ooh, 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 ah, ah, ooh, ooh. And when Miracle speaks back to him, it just sounds like Hungarian. That's because it is. Yeah. Um, so, anyways, the point is, is that Miracle wants to prove that apes are the ancestors of man and thus prove evolution uh, by finding a way to mix the blood of man and ape. And I suppose it's, like, worth pointing out that 1845 puts this, like, in fictional settings significantly before Darwin's uh, origin of the species work. And, like, even if it's, like, contemporary to that time, uh, it's not like Darwin was readily accepted, right? Oh, yeah, like, fucking people still have problems with that shit today. 1859. 
Yeah. So it would be like 14 years after the fictional setting of this movie. Yeah, so the crowd at this carnival is not very receptive to Miracle's theories. Because, yeah, like this is some really out there shit for 1845. Uh, the person who is kind of interested is uh, Pierre, because he's, you know, a smart man. He's a medical student. And, yeah, and he's also, like, he's even bizarre for a medical student, right? Because Paul's like, oh, you have ambition, that's weird. It's because his interest lies in studying the weird deaths of women showing up in the river yeah, rather we, than his own schooling. Right, which we haven't gotten to yet. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Um, Pierre sticks around after the show uh, to talk to Miracle, and the ape, Eric, takes a liking to Pierre's girlfriend, Camille. He snatches Camille's bonnet, and Miracle asks if he could replace the bonnet, and if so, where does Camille live? So he could send her a new one. And Pierre's kind of like, no, we're not telling you where Camille lives. You're super fucking creepy. We're getting out of here. So they leave. You're creepy because you're foreign. <laughs> yeah. And Bella Lugosi. So they leave. And uh, Miracle asks his assistant, Janos, uh, who's played by uh, African-American actor Noble Johnson, to follow them. And then we cut to Miracle and Eric in a carriage being driven by Janos arriving at what we assume is Camille's apartment having followed them because we keep cutting from Miracle on the streets kind of listening to Camille and Pierre having really bad romantic dialogue with each other on like a balcony. Then Miracle's carriage continues on into the world's foggiest of nights and they come across a woman who's witnessing a fight between two men, a knife fight, and the two men kill each other. And Miracle leaves his carriage, and he approaches this woman and sort of scoops her up out of the night into the carriage, and she doesn't seem to react at all to Eric the Ape Man in the carriage. And then we kind of cut to Miracle's laboratory, where he's got this woman, like, bondage chained up to a big X, um, Which is used for torture. Yes. Yeah. He's clearly been doing things to her already, because she's screaming and passing out and stuff. But in this scene, he extracts some of her blood and then examines it under a microscope and then gets really upset and declares that she has rotten blood, that her blood's as black as her sins, and that her beauty was a lie. And then she dies from her ordeal and Janos comes and basically drops a trap door that drops her down into the river, and she goes away. And Miracle has a line about, like, will my search never end? And then the police fish a nude woman out of the river, and there's a bunch of dialogue about how this is, like, the third time this has happened this week, and they bring her to the morgue, and that's when Dupont shows up at the morgue, and it's clear that he comes here fairly often for samples, because uh, he's a medical student and so on. And he's taken an interest in the murders of these women, so he bribes the mortician to give him some blood samples from the latest victim, because he's noticed that all the victims have the same markings on them, the same injuries. Um, so he's doing a bunch of science at home in his apartment that he shares with Paul, uh, trying to look at this blood and figure out what the connection is between all these women. Um, gosh. Then Camille receives the package from Dr. Miracle. 
Thank you. From Dr. Miracle to replace her bonnet. She has this line of dialogue from her mom like, Oh, what a pretty bonnet. Uh, it's replaced by this guy who didn't seem to know where I, I lived. And her mom saying, That's strange. Well, it is a pretty bonnet. Yeah, they're not very bright women. The point of this scene is to establish not only that Miracle knows where Camille lives, which we already knew, but that Camille lives with her mother. It also establishes that Miracle, in his note to Camille, has asked her to come meet him tonight at the carnival. Like, to read the stars for her, but obviously that's a ruse. Yeah. So, um, after that, Camille and Pierre and all of the students at this medical school, presumably, go on a picnic in the park, and there's a bunch of flowery romantic dialogue that doesn't matter at all, um, but in the course of which, Pierre learns that Camille got this new bonnet from Miracle, and Pierre doesn't really trust that Dr. Miracle, so instead of Camille going down to meet him at the carnival, Pierre does. Uh, he goes down to talk to Miracle, and Miracle's like, yeah... I don't live in Paris, the carnival's leaving, I'm going with them to Munich, no big deal. And then Pierre leaves Miracle's tent and overhears a bunch of dudes moving boxes around about like, oh yeah, Miracle isn't coming with us, he's staying in Paris. And it's like, alright, well, this guy's suspicious. So Pierre follows Miracle and finds out where his hideout is. Then we cut to Camille's place, uh, Pierre and Camille having another kind of whatever romantic scene. Pierre leaves, and Miracle is there, waiting for Pierre to leave. He goes upstairs to try and convince Camille to come with him willingly. I mean, under the guise of a bunch of lies and bullshit, but you know, still. And she's like, no, it's clearly very late at night, my mother's gone to bed, it's not appropriate for you to come into my room, it's not appropriate for me to go with you. Like, no. Uh, so after that, uh, she locks the door, Miracle leaves, and Eric, who's waiting in the carriage, gets the okay to climb up the side of the building, bust in the window, Nosferatu his way through the room, and uh, attack everybody. <laughs> uh, Camille screams and faints, and that wakes up her mom. Then we get a scene that's very clearly edited around implying what's happening without really being able to show us what's happening which is a lot of very quick cuts of Camille's mother and close-ups on Eric and screaming and thumping noises and people in the rest of this apartment, apartment building. building hearing all these noises and rushing out of their rooms and uh, Pierre Dupont coming back and hearing the noises and him running up the stairs and them finding that the door's locked so they got to break the door in from the inside and all of these very quick edits uh, in a very kind of uh, engaging visual manner until we break in the door uh, and we discover that there's no one in the room at all. Something you missed is that cutting back and forth between Eric going up into the apartment is Dupont back at his apartment. Mm. Um, and he makes the connection that the three women died from gorilla blood being injected into their blood. And then he puts two and two together and realizes that Camille is in danger, so he's running back, and that's why he's back at her apartment in time for the action scene. Right. Very good point. Thank you for reminding me of that. So, after they've busted the room and found that nobody's there, the cops show up, they want to question everyone, and this is where we get to this movie's actual attempt to kind of 
remind everyone that it was adapted from an Edgar Allan Poe short story. <laughs> They're questioning everyone who lives in the building, and everyone's arguing about the fact that they all heard a voice, but they couldn't agree what language the voice was in. And there's a bunch of nationalistic humor in regards to this, with mm -hmm. uh, everyone accusing everyone else. They questioned Pierre, and he's like, yep, nobody could understand the language because it wasn't a human language, it's an ape language, this isn't really a deduction in this version of the story, I just know that there's an ape who speaks a language because I saw him in an earlier scene. Uh, look over here, the mom's not in the room because she was murdered, she stepped up the chimney. No man could do that, it was definitely an ape. Oh, look, there's ape hair in her hands. Uh, also, the ape's got Camille, and we gotta go after her, so come with me. Mm -hmm. And it's not really like... Pierre Dupont is like an amazing detective who's figured this out. It's just, he knew what was going on, and then the cops arrested him because he was there at the scene at the time, and he just had to wait around frustrated until they finally asked him, hey, what's going on? He has some deduction in terms of, like, the science work he's doing, mm -hmm. but not detective work. Yeah, like, we see that he's intelligent and that he's able to put all this stuff together in the rest of the movie, um, but in the context of the scenes that actually adapt the detective story, it's like me being a detective because I can tell you what happened in the first half of this movie if you came in halfway through the movie. <laughs> they rush over to Miracle's hideout after a bunch of arguments and whatnot, and Miracle's got Camille chained up this time. And he declares that her blood is pure and it's perfect, and this is definitely going to work. And then the police are showing up, so it's like, Janos... Like, go hold them off while I conduct my experiment. Janos doesn't hold them up. He ends up dead. He tries. He gives it a shot. Hey. <laughs> and then... It's funny because he gets shot. And then uh, the moment comes for Miracle to open up Eric's cage so he can commence with the part of this experiment that involves mingling human and gorilla blood. And Eric just decides that now is the time to kill Miracle. So he does. He strangles him. And then he grabs Camille, goes up to the roof, and starts running across the roofs of Paris, because we need to end on some kind of exciting action note. Pierre chases them across the rooftops. It's really worth saying that this movie came out over a year before King Kong. <laughs> and uh, then Pierre shoots Eric. Eric falls in the river. Camille is saved. Camille is saved. Dr. The... Miracle's body ends up in the morgue. Yeah, it has like this weird epilogue of... The police bringing Miracle's dead body into the morgue, which doesn't really make sense unless you deduce that there's probably a bookend thing with the beginning happening in the morgue, but that doesn't happen because things got edited out of order. Yeah, and there's also a great line where the mortician asks the police, like, Miracle's profession, and the cop's just like, oh, he was a scientist or something. Yeah. And it just kind of <laughs> sums up this movie's attitude to itself in a lot of ways, I think. <laughs> so what kind of stuff got cut out? You kind of alluded to that, and then I'm also curious what the original intended order of the opening stuff was, if you were able to find that stuff out. Yeah, for sure. The movie was supposed to start with the police fishing the body out of the river. That was the opening of the movie, because that body is nude. The body of the woman that gets dropped into the river, who in this version that's implied to be, she was wearing clothes. Mm. So they pick a woman out of the river and bring her to the morgue. And there's the scene we get of what's this woman's name and age and profession and so on and her being put in the morgue that, yes, then bookends the end of the film, exactly like you guessed. 
Pierre has his scene where he visits the morgue and is bribing the mortician for samples and uh, learning about how there's been a lot of these murders. Then we get Miracle's encounter with the woman on the streets, uh, with the two men fighting over her. That's his first scene. That's why she doesn't react to Eric being in the carriage, because Eric's not in the carriage. Mm. This version also would then mean that we first see... We are introduced to Miracle through his voice and as a kind of a more mysterious presence. Also, it's worth stating that it's not made clear in the body of the film proper, but this woman he picks up is credited in the cast list as Woman of the Streets. So she's a prostitute, right? Yeah. Like, that's pretty obvious. So he takes her back to the laboratory, experiments on her. The experiment is a failure. He dumps her into the river. Then we get the carnival with Pierre's friends taking him to the carnival to try and get his mind off the morbid morgue activities he's been doing. Then we see Miracle meet Camille. Ah, this is who I need for my things. Let's go follow her and use her as our next victim. Because it doesn't really make sense in the movie as it exists that he's already picked up that Camille's who he needs, but he's still wasting his time with people he knows are going to be failures. Yeah. The reason this was all reordered was so that we would get to meet... Dupont, Miracle, and Camille all at once, all at the start of the movie, rather than kind of spreading it out. As for what was cut out of the movie, mostly a lot of violence, uh, as well as stuff clarifying the nature of Miracle's experiments and what he was trying to do, which I'm going to talk about a little bit later uh, as we kind of analyze the film. It's also worth saying I talked a little bit about how this film was cut down even more when it was re-released after the production code. Specifically, all of the Women of the Streets stuff was cut, including uh, her being experimented on in the laboratory, as was any mention of evolution. Uh, so Miracle at the carnival was still in there, but it was just like, Ah, yes, I have this ape man. Oh, he thinks you're pretty. And like that was kind of it. So you have no clue what Miracle's doing at all. Why would they cut the evolution stuff? Uh, because it was the late 1930s, and that stuff wasn't appropriate for American audiences. So, what did you think about this movie, Sarah? I definitely enjoyed it more this time than I did the first time we watched this. Okay. Uh, and I think it's because I had a greater appreciation for the German Expressionism sets that were going on, greater appreciation for where this fits in the canon of horror developing, mm -hmm. especially in America. I, I have to say Pierre and Camille are just so boring. They're the worst. I am so bored. It's funny how the, this actress was cast instead of someone else because of her screen presence, and I'm just so bored every fucking time she's on screen or talking. It's writing, and by writing I mean like specifically dialogue, mm -hmm. like, who boy. Or maybe it's just the fact that I'm just so bored <laughs> by Pierre and Camille that I'm just more interested in, like, not them. Oh, absolutely. I mean, like, basically whenever this movie has a scene on screen that Lugosi's not in, mm -hmm. this movie's bad. Like, it really sucks that Lugosi's reputation just went in the toilet after this, because honestly, like, he's a good actor in this. Yeah, he's really good in this. He's he's definitely, like, the best thing in this. I mean, yeah. It's not just like, oh, he's good in comparison to everything else. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he's, he's by far the strongest member of the cast. Meanwhile, 
you know, you've got Sydney Fox, Leon Ames, Burt Roach. They're all pretty bad. Fox, admittedly, she doesn't get much to do in this film other than be innocent and pretty and scream. Um, but even then, like, she doesn't evoke the kind of screen presence, exactly what you said, that really, like, engenders the love of an audience and thus causes that audience to fear for her safety, right? Like, Faye Ray doesn't get a lot to do in King Kong, but, like, when the monsters got her, you're like, oh, no, what's gonna happen? And when, like, Eric's got Camille, you're like, eh, well, if she dies, she dies. <laughs> but, like, one can only wonder, like, what Betty Davis would have done with this part, for example, instead of Sidney Fox. I also really wonder what Fleury was doing. Mm. Basically, when I say that, I want to know his justification for including these, like, picnic scenes. Yeah! And, like, the weird fucking singing after she gets her new bonnet. We take a hard right into pastoral. <laughs> yeah, like, absolutely. I mean, editing shoulders some of the blame for what's going wrong with this movie, but it's also clear that, like, the four writers of the script did not help in regards to this movie's constant tone shifts. Too much of it lingers on comedy and lightheartedness, but I feel like this is trying to hedge its bets, almost like as if in penance for the darker nature of this, the movie's other scenes, like the, the kind of taboo stuff that's going on in the rest of the movie. It's like, oh, if we have these really light scenes the rest of the time, it'll balance out. Uh, I don't think it works. Yeah, I don't think it works either. I, I can understand needing a reprieve, but... The movie comes to a stop for this stuff, and it comes to a stop for, like, all of the comic relief, too. Like, you've got Burt Roach playing Paul. He's, oh, God. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's totally useless in terms of, like, story, right? But he commits the worst sin of a comic relief character in that he's also, like, aggressively unfunny. Yeah. Like, he's an effeminate coward who would rather stay home and eat than actually do anything. That's, that's the whole joke. And yeah, the joke is he's, like, the stay-at-home wife who's nagging his husband to come to the table for lunch when Pierre's too focused on his work. Yeah, because they're, they're roommates. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, he basically gets two scenes in the movie, and they're both that joke. That, like, Pierre's wanting to be the protagonist of a story, and Paul's like, no, let's just stay home. Yeah, when it's, like, right after the ape has taken Camille and the police are investigating and we get the, like, what language was the man right. speaking? Right, yeah, that's whatever. very comic relief -y trying to be, definitely. Yeah, I feel like it's something from the short story that they were like, we need to have this thing because this is a memorable thing from the short story. Mm -hmm. um, so that's why I'm willing to forgive that a little bit because, like, they are trying to adapt something into something that's not really... Yeah, they like a crime story into a horror story. Yeah, I mean, basically, what they've done in the in terms of the adaptation is they've taken the short story, made it one scene in the middle of this movie, and then expanded it out into a full film on either side. And in doing so, like invented this whole big other story that's about something completely different. And it doesn't work because this whole like, hey, let's stop to do this like deduction of the locked room mystery right after our leading lady has been kidnapped. Yeah. That's the, like, that should be part of the height of the action. And we stop to do this 
boring ass shit. And even Dupont knows that that's a bad idea because he's like, no, I don't have time to explain to you what I'm doing here. Someone's been kidnapped. Like, we gotta go. And, and it, then, like, the movie struggles to get the action and, like, the, the excitement back up to that point and mm -hmm. it doesn't really succeed. Yeah, and, and the fact of the matter is is that the, the mystery stuff that they're actually adapting from Poe doesn't work and isn't interesting because we see the fucking ape go into her room and take her. It's the best scene in the movie. Yeah. Um, Leon Ames is pathetic as Pierre Dupont, as far as I'm concerned. He can't even say monsieur right. He comes off as, like, sometimes he's basically a pompous asshole, and other times he's hopelessly ineffectual. Those are the two modes that he varies between. I mean, considering that Dupont's supposed to be, like, the original literary detective, this movie does pretty poorly by its ostensible lead character. I feel like he would be great in a Three Musketeers remake. Yeah, absolutely, yes, exactly. He's exactly that kind of, like, foppish romantic protagonist. He should be like Basil Rathbone's Sherlock Holmes. He reminds me more of John Astin's Gomez Adams. Is that just because of the mustache? Partially, but it's also just the fact that he's this, like, foppish, dandy romantic. <laughs> At least Gomez is effectual. Yes, that's true. I mean, like, he doesn't even get to fight Miracle at the end, right? Like, Eric kills Miracle. Dupont just shoots him with a gun. For being the best thing about the movie, Bela Lugosi gets a pretty shitty death scene. It's kind of cool because it's done in shadow. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it's like, well, shot. Story-wise, it is shitty. Yeah, it just doesn't make sense to me, because it's established in the film that he has enough of a rapport with Eric to order this animal around to do specific tasks, um, and the ape, like, obeys him. And then at the end of the movie, the ape just kills him out of nowhere. It's not even poetic justice, because unlike the short story that this is based on, Miracle is never shown to be, like, abusive towards Eric. He doesn't whip him and beat him up and shit. He's just like, ah, Eric, go and do the thing. I think it's because... So he speaks to Eric in English. So mm. clearly Eric understands English. Right. I kind of interpret the ending as Eric understanding that these women are dying because of something that happens after he does whatever with them. Um, and I feel like it's like Dr. Miracle opens the cage to get Eric to do whatever, and Eric doesn't want to harm Camille, so he kills Miracle for making him, as far as the ape understands, kill her. Mm. That's that's how I interpret that ending. And, like, and again, if as... We've said in previous episodes, if we have to squint to see it, you kind of failed. Uh, and that's me squinting with that ending. So, this is that's a really good segue for me to start talking about the whatever that Dr. Miracle is trying to do here. Because this is the heart of this movie's problems in terms of why it got edited down so much. In terms of why it felt the need to have these really pastoral jarringly cheerful scenes and everything. There's a lot of themes at play in this movie. Um, there's science versus religion. Mm. Uh, there's sort of reason versus madness, I guess. Like Dupont versus Miracle. The okay. rational scientist versus the mad scientist. Okay. There's purity versus sinfulness. Yeah. There's man versus nature. Mm. Uh, and then there are the crimes of murder and bestiality. Yeah. And yet... The film ends up feeling strangely empty and anemic, 
partially because so much of these themes are left to implication and innuendo, and the compelling dark elements get undercut by the attempts at levity and humor. Alright, so it's never explicitly stated in this film. It's left very vague. But as far as I'm concerned, it's fairly obvious, if you read between the lines, that Miracle's desire to prove man's kinship with apes by mixing their blood means that he wants to breed Eric with Camille. Otherwise, why would the film put all this emphasis over and over again on how much Eric likes Camille? That's what the central difference between the way Eric reacts to Camille versus all the other women is, is Lugosi's like, ah, you like her, ah. The experiments that kill the previous women, I don't think those are the main experiment. They seem to just be testing the crucial element of compatibility before engaging in the main experiment. And judging by the fact that the prostitute Miracle picks up has rotten blood and the unwed, very religious, and therefore implied to be virginal Camille has pure blood, it seems clear that what Miracle's testing for in those initial tests is venereal disease. Mm. So, he's looking for someone for Eric to bone. That's what he's experimenting on those women for, and his methods are brutal enough that it's killing them. So clearly he's doing some sort of thing where he's injecting the gorilla blood into them to test compatibility and stuff. But it seems to me pretty clear that why else would they put the emphasis on Eric's uh, attraction to Camille, and why would there be such an essential difference between the prostitutes and her? I think that speaks to the greater fear that this is talking about. Like, obviously, this is like a monster movie or a mad scientist movie or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but it's the greater fear of racial purity. Yes. F fear of the racial purity being diluted, I should yes. specify. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. The fear, the fear for racial purity. Yeah, so, like, you can see it with, like what you're saying about sex workers, venereal diseases, and Camille's perceived virginity. The fear of Camille being tainted by this impure being. Mm -hmm. But the film opens at this carnival. Yeah. We go to two stages. One stage are these Middle Eastern women. I don't think they're actually Middle Eastern women no. paid to be on screen, but they are doled up to be like that, and they're doing belly dancing. Um, and there's, like, a comment about, like, do you think they're really that color, or do you think they just painted themselves, or something like that. Um, and then the second stage we go to is showing uh, Native Americans. Uh, Apache, I think, is yeah. the tribe from the States, because, again, this is set in Paris. And uh, the idea of, like oh, Pierre, we'll have to, like, protect you from, like, these savages. And, like, mm -hmm. some, like, older aristocratic people are like, these guys are no better than the rats in the sewers or some yeah. bullshit like that. Yeah, yeah. And when we have the film open with these scenes, and then we go to our third stage, which is talking about the evolution of man coming from gorilla, mm -hmm. or, like, Homo sapiens, I'll say gorilla because I'm not a scientist. Yeah, yeah, from lower primates. Yeah, um, and people going, heresy, that's disgusting. Yes. Whatever. So there, again, is the fear of, like, we can't be from apes, we are pure. Mm -hmm. um, we're civilized. We're civilized. I don't know if the film is purposely including those stages and that dialogue as, like, a way to show, as a way to support this idea or this fear, because... That's not the original opening of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, 
a lot of that dialogue is coming from our heroes. Yeah. Heroes, I, I always end up mixing up the term heroes and protagonists. And, like, you've called me on it before, so let me rephrase. Like, these are the people who we're supposed to be empathizing with. Mm -hmm. And, like, the stuff they're saying... Like, I mean, like, to be fair, this is... From the 1930s, so, like, maybe an audience member of the time wouldn't find their stuff's, like, their dialogue so upsetting, but, like, it still feels like it's offhand enough that I don't know if the film is purposely doing that to underline their point about what the fear is in this movie. I think we're supposed to, you know, when they go up to the belly dancers and it's like, oh, aren't they sexy? Like, this is a better way of learning anatomy than going to the morgue, eh, Pierre? And, like, when they go up to the Apache and they're like, oh, what savages or whatever. I think an audience in 1932 is assumed to be agreeing with those statements. We're supposed to be on their side. Like, yeah. that's, that's the assumption. It's tough. I, I definitely see your argument about this film being about racial purity. It's hard to figure out the film's intent when the intent of the authors of this film has been so diluted and messed around with. Because I also think a pretty strong argument is made that this film is also about the fear that men are animals. Which, I can't speak for everybody. For me, that fear doesn't ring for anything. Like, if you're like, hey, you know what's a scary idea? Men are descended from beasts. I'd just be like, ah, I mean, that's like saying that B being the next letter after A in the alphabet is a scary idea. Like, that doesn't <laughs> scare me at all. But, like, certainly... For some people today, and for a lot more people in the 1930s, that was a scary idea. The social construction of civilization was based on the idea that men were inherently superior to animals because of rationality and souls and philosophy and all that jazz, and evolution came along and said, you're just animals. And I think that did freak a lot of people out. And in some ways, that's also what this movie is, is about, is about saying, like, isn't that scary that you are so similar to this ape man that this scientist thinks he might be able to interbreed you. Mm -hmm. But it, it's certainly tough to put a finger on... There's something here, right? Like, you can tell there's something here. It's just very difficult to put a finger on it. I agree with you that, like, it's hard to judge this movie accurately because of the way that it's been edited and hacked around, and also hearing its production history as well. But, like, it doesn't solve the fact that it's so uneven yeah. and have, has these tonal whiplashes. Yeah. So I that really undercuts what it's trying to do as well. As much as Flurry might have been like, yeah, like, I have this specific vision and it's the best thing ever. In practice and in making this movie, it failed, yes. I think. Yeah, and I think, I feel like the tonal whiplashes are there because somebody figured that if we had a picnic scene, it would get everyone's mind off of the horrific laboratory scene right before. But you're right, like, you get these whiplash tonal shifts when you try to make movies that play it safe. Yeah. And this movie wants to be transgressive and play it safe at the same time and those two impulses don't connect and i think it's really interesting that you noted that this film came out the day after freaks right because freaks was we mentioned this in the episode on freaks that it was like the first time that a horror movie uh, had been put out in this trend that went too far yeah. and i think this movie probably did the same even with this like trying to play it safe. Mm -hmm. uh, especially seen as how, like, the Hayes Code was, like, unable to even fathom that this movie was created, you know? Yeah. 
but like at least freaks as much as it has like that weird front half versus the end half it at least is like working towards a specific vision yeah you can you can feel that freaks is a piece some of the pieces are missing but it is a piece Whereas this, it feels like you had a bunch of different jigsaw puzzles uh, from different sets all lumped into one and you're just smashing the pieces to kind of fit. And, like, you can kind of make out a <laughs> picture. It's kind of like a Picasso, but, like, you're still, like, hammering in the pieces. I mean, it's it's got that feel that is, I mean, certainly very recognizable to fans of modern-day Hollywood blockbusters, which is... You've got a director with a singular vision and a story he wants to tell, but who clearly every time the studio executive said, yeah, but can we have a little bit of this? He went, yes, sir. And yeah, can we have a bit of that? Yes, sir. And, you know, just kind of went along until you ended up with something that didn't work anymore. Mm -hmm. I will say that his cinematographer was great. Like, yes. Definitely Carl Freund is great. Um, and the sets are definitely German Expressionist. Yeah. Like, when they're up on Camille's balcony, it looks so fake and glorious in its fakeness if it's right into German Expressionism. It's a really interesting visual style because you can't escape how Expressionist this movie is, but it is like a, a Hollywood kind of Expressionism where it's like, right, but the streets are still streets and, like, the buildings are still buildings and the light is still light. It's not just, like... A crazy painted cardboard backdrop. It's this it's this weird like halfway point that I think, you know, is like the Tim Burton version of expressionism. Totally. When I say that like it's fake, I mean that with like I'm saying that with love. Yeah. It looks fake, but that's what German expressionism is. Yes, and it's it's very stylized and it looks very cool. The stylization of the movie is excellent. Like it has a budget that is a third lower than what Frankenstein got and two-thirds lower than what Dracula got. But I feel like the frame is more effectively filled and the atmosphere of horror and dread is more effectively conveyed with the visual style of this movie than with the visual style of either of those two previous films. This movie just doesn't have a good cast or story to go along with its cinematography and its set design. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The movie, for me, never gets better than the laboratory scene with the prostitute, who, I have to note, is played by an actress named Arlene Francis, who would later become famous as a long-running panelist on the game show What's My Line? And it's the most effectively horrific, visually memorable, narratively satisfying scene in the whole movie, as far as I'm concerned. At least in terms of judging this as a horror movie. Definitely. And I think that's a great scene to point to how Bella Lugosi is good in this movie. Yes, absolutely. I mean... Like, his speech at the carnival... Is real good, too. Is real good, too. But in that scene, you really see how at home he is in horror. Yeah, he's the perfect outcast megalomaniac mad scientist, right? <laughs> like, he's so far above the rest of the cast in screen charisma that it becomes, as you pointed out, very difficult to give a damn about anyone else in this movie. Like, you, you kind of want to see Dr. Miracle win because Dupont is such a putz. Yeah. yeah. You know, like, when the film is effective, it's fantastic. There are editing techniques and visual language and performances and writing in this movie 
that all deserve places in the classic horror canon. I remember watching it this time and being stunned at the scene where the tenants of the apartment are trying to break into the room and, and they're hearing the screams and the way that like it cut between all their faces and mm-hmm. stuff was really amazing. Um, like you said, Miracle's speech at the carnival's really good. Uh, we've already called out Eric's attack on Camille and her mother, the experiment on the prostitute. These scenes deserve to be surrounded by a better movie than the one that they ended up in. There is a good movie in the DNA of Murders of the Rue Morgue. Now, if only we could breed it with a better movie. But it would take a miracle. Oh, that is so good. I'm very happy you did that. I did not even see that coming. (laughs) Do we want to move into ranking, Sarah? Yes, please. Okay. Do you have a range picked out for Murders in the Rue Morgue? Okay. I have two ranges. Interesting. Because this film is so uneven. Right. There's the there's the what this film is trying to do range and the how this film ended up range. Exactly. Uh-huh. When we are ranking things, I really try to look at the movie as a whole first. Right. And then when it's within like a range we have agreed upon, that's when I like to take and like when we're looking at and comparing the a film with a very specific film yeah that's when i like to take specific things and compare them like <laughs> how the endings work or how the horror works or whatever yeah that makes sense as a as a methodology for sure so where my gut tells me this movie fits as a whole is between the barrymore jekyll and hyde uh, around number 22 okay with the floor being the golem Going from bottom up, we have the golem. We have Avenging Conscience. Which is also really uneven. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have the 1912 Jekyll and Hyde. Uh, we have The Unknown, another kind of uneven movie. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, John Barrymore's Jekyll and Hyde, which felt like, I remember us putting it this low, like it's moved down since because of like what we've put above it, but uh, because it felt like a... Pichu to Pikachu, with right. Pikachu being the current number one, sure. Jekyll and Hyde. Right. The range where I'm feeling like what it's trying to be is between the magician uh-huh. and the ceiling being the 1919 Eerie Tales. So okay. that's between like 14 to 17. So my range overlaps with that range. I feel like I might be giving this movie a lot of credit for its visual style, for sure, mm. as well as those scenes that do work. For me, it's almost maybe a feeling that those scenes that do work are so good that they overpower the scenes that don't, and maybe you're coming to... Like, I'm remembering all the scenes with Dr. Miracle, and you're remembering, like, a seriously... Must have been a single-minute-long shot of just Camille on a swing. Yeah. (laughs) So my range at the top is Orlac's hand. uh, Hands of Orlac at number 12 which I feel is really equivalent to this movie in terms of Mm. looking really cool, but not really holding up to any kind of plot scrutiny. That's a good point. And then the lower part of this range for me is The Magician, where I feel this is better than The Magician, because uh, I like Bela Lugosi better than Paul Wigner, and The Magician doesn't really become anything at all until the third act. Right in the middle of my higher range and your range is Genuina. Right, which which is... Also went through quite the hack and slash editing process. Yeah, and also is kind of creatively like a mess. What are you thinking comparing this film to Genuina? 
my gut says that I like this better, mainly because Genoina kind of works better as a piece. It doesn't feel as disjointed uh, as Murders in the Rue Morgue, because it doesn't have those tone shifts. It just has plot holes. Murders in the Rue Morgue, though, I like all the things in it better. I like the actors better. I like the sets better. I like the perform, you know, the cinematography. It's sort of a whole versus parts kind of argument. Uh, I feel like I like the parts in Murder in the Rue Morgue better, and I like the whole in Genuina maybe a little better. My gut says I like Murders in the Rue Morgue more. I identified the Hands of Orlac as kind of an upper part of the range because of like the weird plot stuff and the visual style. That being said, I, I do feel like, you know, like, the original Student of Prague from 1913, like, definitely works better as a story than this movie. Like, as edited as it stands, Murders in the Rude Morgue kind of just feels like a bunch of stuff that happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and the 1919 Eerie Tales, you know, it's got that joke ending, and that's kind of similar to all the crappy joke stuff in this movie, but in Eerie Tales, that joke ending is a separate story from the other stories, and here it's all kind of intertwined. You know, my gut's starting to settle at putting this movie under Eerie Tales above Genuina. What do you think about that? You know what, I think I've kind of grown to agree with ranking this above Genuina, below Eerie Tales. Okay, then if that's, yeah, that's where my gut feels it's right. Well, what's kind of leading me there is I'm thinking about the parts that were, like, truly horrific Mm -hmm. in each of these movies. Right, sure. And nothing really compares to how uncomfortable I feel when Eric is attacking Camille and her mom, and how upset I feel when the sex worker is being tortured. Yeah. All right, so entering the list at number 15, a pretty good showing overall for a movie that kind of ruined two men's careers. But bolstered one others. Yes. Uh, is Murders in the Rue Morgue from 1932, directed by Robert Flory. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com, and there you can also find our ask box, where you are welcome to submit appeals and also suggestions or comments or anything of that sort. Uh, If Tumblr isn't your bag, you can email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or chat with us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday and is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and other podcatchers that are connected to those two services. We definitely appreciate it if you leave comments or reviews. Reviews and ratings uh, help the show get seen by others. It's also super appreciative that if you know anyone who you think might be into this weird little show about classic horror films, that you let them know about the show. Uh, Podcasts grow best by word of mouth. This is kind of the month for us. Yeah, I mean, it's October, it's Halloween, people are in that spooky, spooky mood. So if you have a friend who's looking to learn more about or get recommendations on uh, some older classic horror stuff, you know, maybe they're just looking for something to watch this October, you can tell them, hey, there's a whole playlist on YouTube of stuff, and there's also a whole podcast that goes along with and contextualizes all these weird old horror movies so that you can kind of enjoy them a little more easily here in the year of our Lord 2017. <laughs> <laughs> so what are we watching next week for the second week of October? Next week, Sarah, we're watching a movie that I 
have a lot of affection for that just really speaks to me that I think we're going to be able to have a really interesting discussion about. And that is Carl the Dreyer's 1932 film, Vampire. Mm, right. I don't like this movie. <laughs> yes. And I love this movie. And it's also got a lot of weird shit going on. So yeah. I think we're going to be able to have a pretty interesting episode about it. I also want to say again to the listeners that we still haven't been able to find a readily accessible English subtitled version of the 1932 sound remake of Eerie Tales, a.k.a. Unheimliche Geschichten. The film uh, seems to have been released on VHS in the 1990s in Germany with no subtitles, and that's it. Uh, if you're aware of any sites that are streaming this film uh, or any other ways that we can get a copy so we can look at it for the show, that would be really great because otherwise we're going to have to skip over it after Vampire and go straight to White Zombie. Uh, so drop us a line if you have any leads on that particular film. Anyhow, uh, next week is Vampire, which I'm super excited about, and we will see you all then, Creatures of the Night. Bye! Bye!